and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Ono Sullivan and today's episode of the show is a book review. It goes on for quite a bit so I won't keep you too long. It's about Meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City 2001 to 2011 by Lizzie Goodman. It's probably the music book of the year. It's an oral history of, well, New York City music. It chronicles the rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and rise and rise of absolutely loads of bands who kind of define the early sound of the 21st century. So Lizzie Goodman talks to a cast of over 60 or over 70 characters in the book. Uh, they include all of the all of the strokes, uh, Dave Longstreth, Dave Longstreth from uh, Dirty Projectors is in there. The guys from DFA and LCD Sound System, uh, James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy are in there as well. Yeah, Yaz are all in there, all of their members. Brandon Flowers is in there, Interpol. And it's absolutely fascinating. So I was like, I had to talk about it with somebody. And so I decided to talk to my friend, uh, Padre Gomani, Paddy, And... So what you're going to hear is just our conversation about the book, kind of in general. I don't think that if if you've read it, you'll hopefully enjoy the conversation and agree or disagree with uh, a lot of our points. And if you haven't read the book and feel like this 600 word oral history is beyond you, that you have absolutely no interest in the likes of uh, The Strokes, Yeah Yeah's, Interpol, White Stripes, LCD Sound System, Vampire Weekend. Well, first of all, like what fans, what fans do you like? And second of all, uh, like I'm, I'm sorry, but we just had to talk about the book, so that's what follows. Hopefully, you uh, get something out of it. I couldn't recommend the book uh, highly enough. It's out on Faber, and it's it's probably a little bit on the expensive side, but oh my god, it's so worth it. It's just hours and hours of entertainment. I'm looking forward to uh, rereading it. So this is uh, myself and Paulie talking about Meet Me in the Bathroom. Uh, if you, oh yeah, I suppose I better do some of those social links. If you have a, if you have read the book, then send me an old tweet or uh, an email uh, at TPOE blog on Twitter, uh, the point of everything on Facebook, and the point of everything at gmail dot com is the email address. And let me know what you think. And if you haven't read the book and you want to know more about it, like I don't know, may- maybe I'll send back an email. But I'm actually really bad at replying to emails, so maybe I won't. So here it is, myself and Paulie talking for absolutely ages, going in-depth, going inside baseball on the New York scene that is contained in Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman. So after much hectoring and badgering by me, over about like a couple, like five WhatsApp messages, mm. uh, you read, you decided to buy and read uh, Meet Me in the Morning. Meet, uh, meet Me in the Morning. That's <laughs> one of my favorite cafes in Dublin. <laughs> but th- we're going to talk about Meet Me in the Bathroom, uh, Rebirth, uh, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City, 2001 to 2011 by Lizzie Goodman. You bought it. You read it. Your thoughts, buddy? I think maybe this is, this could be another instance where like the authenticity comes into question because I downloaded it on Kindle. So maybe I'm not getting the full experience. Maybe you had a different experience with the actual real version of it. But um, this the book's been kind of talked about for the past few months. There have been a lot of kind of snippets of it coming out. And it just seemed fascinating. And it really, really was. Like, I'm a huge fan of kind of the behind-the-scenes creative things, especially for stuff so influential, especially for us, because most of these bands, these songs and stuff, are becoming big when we're just getting into music, getting to this type of music. So the kind of rebirth for us was the start. So it's a very... Uh, it's a weird one for other people kind of going oh yeah remember when rock and roll was dangerous remember when all these bands remember how bad it was in the 90s that just wasn't there for us we kind of went oh yeah sure of course the strokes are around of course yeah yeah it's around they've been around oh I don't like this yeah 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 song we were allowed to have that because we didn't have like the tripe before it so hearing all the discussions behind it and the creativity it's fascinating to me yeah, because we both kind of got into it at the same time. We both had, uh, like, you you grow up in West Cork and you're just like, we both had Sky, so we were just watching MTV2 all the time. Yeah, it was like a And Bible. I was trying to think, like, when was the first time that I either heard about or heard The Strokes? And I don't know when exactly. I think it might have been Someday was my first, like, interaction with them. My first interaction with The Strokes was reading in the RTE guide 
best of the year 2001 Dave Fanning made um, Is This It the best album Ooh. and the fo- the photo was the album sleeve which of course is a lady's bottom with a rubber glove mm. and I remember being like somehow outraged at this even though I was 14 I should be like hey this is class this is rock and roll but I was like oh, how dare they put this in the RTE guide <laughs> I was indignant. I still remember the being wow. like... You were approved at 12 years old. 100%. I was somehow indignant at this. But 14 years old in 2001. Um, I will check my ID. <laughs> I'll put it up in the comment section. Um, and so, like, everything from there was kind of a slow introduction. Like, you'd hear one song if it was on MTV2, and then you'd hear another song. And so, like, I'd say I didn't have the album of the strokes till well well after everyone else had decided it was the greatest thing ever and had gotten over it and was waiting for the second album yeah i had just heard the songs it is funny just re just like reading about the emergence of this and how all of the bands are interacting whereas the way that we get it is like oh there's this band and then this completely separate band and then this other band you know like yeah yeah's uh strokes and interpol who all kind of cross-pollinate in the book alongside like Dave's Attack and TV on the radio and just countless others. Whereas when we get it, you know, you're kind of getting it without the context. Mm-hmm. Unless you're paying attention. Like, I used, I don't think that it was until about 2004-ish that um I really got into it. Like, I was just looking up dates when albums were released. Uh, the Killers, uh, Hot Fuzz, Hot Fuzz, Fuss. Uh, was released in 2004. And then the, the Kings really? Leon. Yeah. And then Kings Leon. Uh, debut album was released in 2003 yeah no, so I do yeah you kind of yeah like that's one of the things about the book I would have liked specific dates yes sort of thing you're kind of like when is all this happening it sounds like New York in 99 to like just pre uh, September 11th mm-hmm. was like the best time to be in a band in New York and be a music fan in New York yeah like um, it starts off with discussing how the pre and talking about Jonathan Fire Eater and bands like that. I had never heard of Jonathan Fire Eater. At all. Yeah. Not even close. And looking up their dates, that was like 95, 96. They were done they were, in 98. They were really, really young. Yeah. And they went on to become the Walkmen, who I thought was like, the like before I started reading the book, I thought, oh, this is going to be a load about the Walkmen because they're the most New York City band yeah. that I could think of, of that kind of type. Very guitar rock. Uh, the Rad is Throwback kind of stuff. Song. Yeah. Um, but they only crop up for one or two chapters right near the end as well. I suppose, and this is one of the uh, criticisms of the book, as it will, sometimes it's kind of focusing on, because she talks about, uh, Lizzie Goodman, sorry, uh, talks about, like, she worked with, uh, was it Nick from The Strokes? He was in the same coffee Nick shop. Lindsay, yeah. Yeah, and so it's sometimes it feels like, hey, these are my friends, These my friends are in bands, I'm going to talk to these guys, whereas it would have been a lot more interesting to follow, say, The Walkman's path, which that sounds like a really, really bad album title. <laughs> and um, so, like, the John the Fire stuff is very interesting. Also, not worth checking out. Basically, if you can imagine the worst door song and then flush it down the toilet and then bring it back up again, that's Jonathan Fire Eater. It is not good. Well, I suppose at the time it could have been something new and exciting, but to these years, not so good. Yeah, like, I thought it was really interesting reading about them. Um, and just how there was so much hype about them and they kind of gave or they had the New York City identity when Mm -hmm. New York didn't have an identity Mm -hmm. back in the mid 90s and it's weird to think just because now New York City is kind of the centre of everything that in London I guess and London crops up a lot as well in the book it does yeah Uh, but at the time you're reading it and you're just thinking like I, I almost can't imagine that there was nothing exciting happening in new york and i don't know was there exciting stuff happening in new york was it all just pop music was it just like britney spears and again this is where i don't know where britney spears is from by the way it's las vegas she is from yeah she's alabama nebraska somewhere like that midwest (laughs) (laughs) just the flyover states that's where she's from um and again this is the nostalgia thing that everyone talks like there was literally an apocalyptic wasteland there was three guys one of them was in a band the other guys hated him so you don't know if it's hyperbole, if it's just, or if that's actually the way that there was no good music around mm. in New York. Because New York is how many millions of people and how many cultural icons just sitting around the place. And as I talk in the book, sitting around in the absolute most disgusting squalor. Yeah, bed sits and just, yeah, crappy bars where, you know, there are no rules. 
and again they talk about like oh it, it was the best um now plant is one of the bars later in the the book but one of the earlier ones and they just talk about oh it was brilliant like you oh yeah you'd get a free shot if you made out in the bar and then you'd get free drinks from night if you had sex on the bar and people had sex on the and bar and people had sex in the bar and like imagine being like oh this is really fun okay this guy's ass is in my face i do not <laughs> want to like why would you mind do you want a quiet point wait where's your face <laughs> Well, it's on the bar, like, you not lying down. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what usually happens at the end of I'm the night. I'm so sleepy. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so we're kind of in West Cork, and we're getting all this music, like, kind of fully formed. Like, mm. when we were listening to The Strokes for the first time, it was, like, post-first album tour and post-first album oh, hype. Oh, way, yeah. It was, like, they were almost getting in on for Room on Fire. Like, I'd love the backlash was starting when we got into them, like... Yeah, yeah, and it's weird coming at it like this, but, like, I... The book is massive, by the way. I don't know if the Kindle does it justice, but it's over 600 pages in in physical form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, it was a difficult reading the oral history on the Kindle because it just from my point of view, reading the book, uh, like it's a very readable book. Mm-hmm. You can just fly through it. But there are a couple of names, particularly of managers and PR and agency and studio people who yeah. are like, I've never heard of this person before. And I had to keep flicking back and seeing, oh, right. So... Like they have uh, a guy who was Nick and Julian from The Strokes guitar teacher. Yeah, I was like, okay, <laughs> it was actually quite interesting, particularly talking about Room on Fire because he was kind of in the studio and he was almost like the the conduit for what Julian wanted to achieve when Julian couldn't yeah. articulate it. And then the the producer they got in, I can't think of his name. It was a big name. Was it Gottlieb? It might have been, um, and they were just like, "Yeah, this isn't working. We have to go back to the first album guy." Here's one of the the, the magic things just about the creative process that I loved. Like Julian would describe, like, "Oh, I need the hi hat to sound more like a kind of the the factual quotes, like like a man walking through the forest at yeah. night time." Yeah. I was like, "That is the most artistic, like, stupid thing," <laughs> but I kind of get what you mean. So it was very interesting. Um, the Kindle itself, reading it, I bookmarked the cast of characters as she calls it at the start of the book so I kept going back but it also I think that kind of tempered with it a bit as well because it was good to know uh, the people and stuff but then you'd get people whose opinion you disregard because you'd go back and like oh yeah I'm looking at oh Laura Young makes a good point oh blogger I don't know if I should really ever say oh you leave bloggers alone (laughs) and then there was like one of them I can't remember was it Justine D no because she's in a band it was someone and her title at the cast of characters was scene maker Oh yeah, she became part of the later crew. Was it in Plant or something? One a of these kind of wet or steam or a fleur. And yeah, it's Seenster. Yeah. For like they had, you know, like the Cribs had a song called "Hey Seenster." Yeah, so. and and everyone hated her, and I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, I hate her. Her, she's a ah. scene maker. No. But that's it, though. Like, uh, they get hangers on so quickly, and yeah, I think one of the main. Takeaways from this book for me is just the ultimate need and want for bands to be big is image. Like they cultivate every, each one of the bands that are massive in the book and talked about that we still talk about at the time. Their image was so central to them being popular. Like they made great songs, but like they talk about Interpol, they wore the suits when they first came out, the black uh, things, black suits and the red ties, which again could have been come off as sticky but it kind of worked the hives with their black suits and the white ties the strokes who were the throwback rock and roll with the converse and stuff like that um the white stripes they came out of the womb with their red black and white that the image was so important for the selling of it but they had the songs to back it up as well and like we're gonna talk we'll probably talk about it towards the end of uh this chat just how uh vampire weekend are kind of painted by lizzie goodman as kind of the heirs to the strokes throne mm-hmm. and i think we both kind of agreed that the book kind of petered out a little bit mm-hmm, and it's definitely. like i don't know is that just because vampire weekend are a good band but they're not like humongous and amazing like we might say the strokes were but that might also just be because of our age and there stuff you go, as well it's it, like yeah. we came at the strokes like at the at the time you want to come at music like you're never going to hold a band in such high esteem as when you first come across them like in your mid-teens or early teens and like now you come across a band and you're like sounds like everything else or what is it uh james murphy 
No, it's Tim Goldsworthy describes every band as a, oh, sounds like early can. <laughs> everything is early can. And it's just like, can can't have made that many songs that everything sounds like early can. Some man though. But like, uh, and then I was thinking about it later just because when I was reading it, I was like, oh, it seems like a bit of a stretch to make the v- Vampire Weekend the heirs mm-hmm. to the Strokes throne. But then you're thinking like the Strokes early in the book are talking about, you know, cultivating that image of a gang walking down the street mm-hmm. all together going to the same gigs uh, passing up the flyers together yeah, and yeah like wearing the leather jackets and you know skinny jeans and converse as well like i watched uh, that two dollar mtv oh, concert bill- yes yeah it's on youtube that apparently it was the end of the strokes they talk about it <laughs> it's uh well it sounds great like you forget just how great a voice julian has yeah um uh, but like Nick, you can barely see Nick's legs because they're playing on like a light up uh, ground. Oh, really? In the round, mm. and uh, like the the quality of the video isn't great or anything like that. But the way it lights up, it almost you know it looks like he's a stick figure or something. <laughs> but then Vampire Weekend come into it later on, and they're very. I think that it's just how Ezra Koenig in particular, Koenig in particular, just kind of talks about we wanted to create that preppy sound the yeah kind of the synesthesia yeah. of uh we're gonna wear polo shirts or shirts the you boating know, clothes done up all the way yeah and we want to be described as preppy and then he sees that everyone is calling vampire weekend preppy and other bands preppy and he's like that's not a genre of music yeah but it's just the way that we cultivated it yeah and it just sounds so i don't know if cynical is the right word but it just seems calculated, calculated i think the word yeah but it's like, wait, is that any different from what the Strokes did? Yeah. Like, uh, 16 years earlier? Yeah. Ish? 17? Yeah. And it is like that whole. It's weird to think of the Strokes as a completely unknown identity of like five fellas who's wearing, oh, they're wearing skinny jeans and Converse. What? Like, we grew up with the skinny jeans and Converse and be like, no, that's not for us. <laughs> so the idea that they had the image straight away is very, very good. Like, I must respect that. And I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if they were playing up the throwback rock and roll straight away because it's like it's rebirth and rock and roll. But the Strokes are the only really in my mind in this book rock and roll band. I think this is where I think we were discussing uh, before that rock music and rock and roll music are different. But the whole aesthetic of the Strokes is like we are rock and roll. We're the gang. We wear jeans. We like Rolling Stones. We're just like we don't care we do whatever we want we do all the drugs all of the drugs <laughs> let me have all of the Man. drugs well yeah we mentioned Jonathan Fireeater earlier they kind of set the template for almost every band that followed in that like they just kind of succumbed to drugs when they were on the cusp of something big in the line for it if you will <laughs> uh, their lead singer Stuart in particular sounded like he was an amazing performer but also that he was just uh, an amazing drug taker yeah and so many bands fall prey to that and it's amazing that Lizzie Goodman was able to like get all of these guys and all of these stories and it is actually mostly guys uh you know like almost like Karen O talks about it you know she was the only girl who was in the scene in in a band and then she asked uh, Debbie Harry for um advice of being a girl in a man's world and she said oh just enjoy it and Karen O was like that's bullshit <laughs> and then a couple of years later she was like yeah debbie harry is right <laughs> because debbie harry is all De- uh, debbie harry is always right you gotta respect her um but yeah it was like drugs just pay- play such a big role particularly in well albert hammond in particular comes mm. across as wow i didn't realize he did not have his shit together for almost any of the strokes career and his two solo albums and stuff like that it, it came off really as kind of you know, John Frusciante, when he went off the rails oh, yeah, yeah. and did his own solo stuff, like everyone knew, like he was off his game. But the Albert Hammond stuff came as a surprise. Like you kind of assumed, I think you assume that most of these, because at the start of the book, the Strokes especially, they talk about why they wanted to be in a band. It's like, we want to make good music, we want to have sex, we want to do drugs. It's all very simple, it's all very, you know, id, it's all very simplified. But that's what they did and that's the way they wanted it and except for I think maybe Julian Casablanca I think Julian Casablanca comes off nearly the best yeah. of the strokes but he's very guarded like a lot of his um, stories and stuff he's like uh, no I won't talk about that and then Abraham goes like oh yeah me and Julian did all this stuff but they used to be housemates as well for a long and long then time then they moved out and that's when Albert just seemed to really go off the uh, 
off the rails. I, I don't know if it's the same for you, but when um, uh, Julian moved out, did you feel a little bit heartbroken for Albert? It was a little bit kind of like, no, the best friends yeah. gang is over. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you do kind of, kind of pick sides in the battle of these bands. And it must be the same for internally as well. Like, you can't imagine that this kind of the changing of, like, uh, scene is the wrong word, uh, situation for all, for the different fellas, is obviously going to impact, like, the dynamic of the group. Mm. I mean, so you got two guys who, like, grew up, like, hey, this is great, and then all of a sudden there's, like, wives, girlfriends, drugs, tours, all this sort of stuff. Of course it's going to impact it so much. I don't think you realise until you see them admitting it, really, that it is such a massive burden, all the stuff. Yeah, I think I think the book is, like, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City 2001 to 2011. Like, it starts before 2001, and it does kind of end in 2011. But it's not just about rock and roll. Um, it's about, like, DFA and mm-hmm. uh, LCD sound system and dance music and so many other genres, whether you want to cite Electro them and believe in clash them. is a thing, apparently. Fisher Spooner, yeah. yeah. Um, who were kind of the first big band, mm-hmm. and we were just listening. We we were just listening because I was like, they were terrible, and you thought they were okay. What I thought one song was okay, then we played their big song, Emerge. which apparently has seven million listens on Spotify and stuff, and it is not good. It's yeah, they got signed to a record deal for about two million, and it just sounds like, uh, you know, their manager was just pressing for it and just really, really good at like playing one label against the other, and suddenly you're up to two million. Uh, record offer mm. and record label offer and then everyone else in New York who's in a band is talking about it because I guess it becomes an open secret Yeah. and then you know oh bands are signing for less bands are signing for more and it's just it's just interesting those kind of dynamics yeah I think um, it's also very interesting just it's an amazing snapshot of time like to say 2001, 2004 I think even if you took she'd taken it for that that's fascinating because like it was they all say in the book it was the end of the big record deals it was the end of the money being thrown out it was the end of dinners and lobster now you're lucky someone brings you to a bar for a pint before going can you sign for like a tenner so and uh, I think honestly you could have called the book because of the internet because a lot of the reasons like oh yeah we'll stop losing money because of the internet and oh yeah all this stuff because of the internet how did you become a brand well, because of the internet yeah. and um uh, I forget my original point. I well, meandered. Apologies. Like, it, it is about all of that stuff, but I also think it's mostly about the strokes because we see them at the beginning, we see them at their absolute height when the likes of um, Drew Barrymore is coming to a show, mm-hmm. looking around backstage, and Fab is the only person there uh, of the strokes there. And lo and behold, they're going out for five years. Which is weird because Fab comes off as the most level headed stroke. He yeah, comes but off. He, c- he also couldn't play at the start. That's true, yeah. <laughs> he was like some guy. Yeah, he was like, okay, I'll be the drummer. Uh, and then we see them... Meg like, White's in Rome, I think it's called. <laughs> they they make their... I guess that they they're, they are kind of like the, the cliched second album syndrome mm-hmm. band. Even though I think that the album is great and everything, but how do you follow up something like Is This It? And you could argue that they did follow it up in the way that in the best way that they could, moving on their sounds slightly. I like I've been listening to a lot of the bands here in the book. I've been listening to them a lot since, and I think Room on Fire is such a good album. I don't think Twelve Fifty One, the first single they release off the album, which they talk about in the book, is like man, they shouldn't have led this. Was not the single, yeah. Um, I don't like that sound, and that sound comes up in another song on the album as well. But uh, uh. Apart from that, I think it's a great album. Like Reptilia's such a great song. Oh yeah, that's one of the best bass lines. Like it's so good. And then we just see it continue on. And I don't know if they talk about the other Strokes album or the one that was released in 2014. Obviously they don't. Mm. But the Strokes really, really petered off. And like I think that it is the story of the Strokes. Which is it? Because again, she doesn't talk about the Strokes beyond like oh the third third album wasn't good and then there's no discussion. It's kind of like, oh yeah, basically all the drugs. We also released two more albums, but no one cares. <laughs> well, it only goes up to 2011. But yeah, as you said, um, Julian uh, Casablancas did kind of seem like the most. I don't know the the one who wanted it the most, and who was kind of the most disappointed as well. Like there's a quote um from uh, Mark Spitz who says uh, about Room on Fire actually says he really really wanted it to be successful he's talking about Julian Casablancas who then says in the oral history uh, to us it always felt amazing but like it could disappear at any second it wasn't that huge so he's very kind of like 
he knows how quickly things can change and how you can move on to the next hot thing. I mean, and it's weird because there's another, I can't remember who said it, but someone says, oh, Julian Casablancas, he didn't want the band to be huge. He just wanted to be like Guiding by Voices. Guided by Voices. Yeah. That's all he wanted to be. I never thought of Guided by Voices and the Strokes in the same breath. At all. And um, it is just, again, you get weird kind of dichotomies like that and it's 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 most apparent with Julian is like oh I didn't want to be huge but this album should have been huge so there's that internal battle within himself which isn't caused by drugs which it did for the most of everyone else in the uh, the book and then you have the most heartbreaking line in the book I think uh from Albert Hammond it comes really towards the end after like he's been through rehab and he comes out of rehab and he's just like still doing drugs and it just sounds like oh man you just need to get things together and he says uh i'm sorry i killed everyone's dreams i don't know if they're still mad at me we'd worked so hard and we'd gotten so good we were just like a machine a well-oiled machine even when we sucked we were awesome we were emotionally disconnected but physically and musically what we built was at its peak it's like i'm sorry i killed everyone's dreams like oh my god the like I, w- I was thinking, like, are the Strokes still talking? Are they? Is everyone who's in this book going to read this book? Are hatches? Are hatchets going to be buried, or are um, like axes Rogers going to be brought back out and <laughs> in put into face. people's backs? Because there's a lot of that in the book, isn't there? We talk. We mentioned DFA. Mm-hmm. Like, I I think that I knew that James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy, who started DFA, didn't really get on. I didn't realize they hate each other. See, that's the thing. I didn't really know kind of the DFA LCD sound system kind of story and stuff. I, f- I think I found that most, I think that's the kind of plot line that's going throughout the book that I enjoyed most because I just didn't really know about it. And I had no real context to it. It has a real kind of like TV soap opera stuff. Oh yeah. Oh, like it's very kind of vibe to it. Doesn't yeah. It? I mean, like, oh, we were two best friends. And then he said something, and I didn't like what he and said. Yeah, and, and it just seems like something was said. Something somebody didn't like something, and then suddenly they hate each other. Um, I think I'd, I would love to hand out awards for the book, just like within it. I think I would give the most bitter award to Tim Goldsworthy. Yeah. He comes off as so petty and bitter for everything there's nothing that comes off where he's kind of like oh yeah i kind of wish i had you know because it comes off that he was very critical of the lcd stuff at the start that losing my just sounded like early can and oh it was pure bullshit but he never said like oh maybe i should have been a bit more supportive or not called him out to his face but even lcd sound system start because of a grudge that james murphy holds against the rapture for leaving dfa so I don't I can't I can't quite remember if they actually released House of Jealous Lovers on DFA or whether the label came in and took uh, House of Jealous Lovers before DFA could do it. They did a couple of remixes that they were Mm -hmm. able to release on 12 inch, which became really, really popular. But House of Jealous Lovers, it's like one of the I keep saying it. It's one of the best songs ever. Um, And I think it still holds up. Lauren Laverne was playing it on her show recently enough. She plays, you know, she brings it out of the box every so often. But it's just like. James Murphy loved them when he saw them live and you know DFA got in there really really early and they were like oh my god these this band is going to be huge and then their heads get turned by the record labels and then they move to the record label for their debut album I think it is Echoes, Echoes yeah that they had for a year recorded with James Murphy in the DFA studios and stuff like that and then James Murphy is like that album is bad you know like they should have just stuck with us and you don't, you don't know if it's actually his opinion or is it just his business mind or his uh, own you know like I'm ego. great how could they leave me yeah his ego yeah and it does like James Murphy doesn't come off as the huggable teddy bear that everybody kind of paints him as nowadays. Do be I, I always thought he was inscrutable and this kind of reaffirmed it, this kind of control freak that he like plays down to like, oh, a bit OCD and stuff. It's like, I don't think it is. I think he is just a control freak. And I like him a little bit less coming out of the Do yeah. yeah. I think I respect him a bit more for it. Because really? uh, I just a, think it's like a very real image of him. I was you know, who would you like to go for a pint with? Oh, I won't go near him in a million miles, yeah. but I kind of you kind of uh, give him the kind of genius um, uh, plateau to kind of, okay, you can do what you want since basically you've been doing it by yourself. Uh, oh, interesting fact as well. I didn't realize this. Um, you know, Death From Above 1979. Mm. They are now Death From Above. They finally got legal clearance to be Death From Above. So like, oh. I think that's the final nail in the DFA coffin. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know, it was just a weird thing because I was just looking stuff up. I was like, oh, that's kind of it dead now. They're not mentioned in the book. 
DFA know. 1979 Surprisingly not <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Other bands here mentioned Like Interpol Are also one of the big strands Running through the book uh, Carlos D The original bassist Is prob- I think he's the biggest Missing character In the book Because He, he just kind of um, uh, Kind of runs through it all Everybody is talking about him And he's just not there To give his own opinion Like he just sounds like a m- Like mad um, they basically they all met in college. I think it was Sam, Paul, Daniel, and Carlos. But they talk about Carlos on in in college. He was wearing a black skirt and a giant crucifix, and he also wore a monk's outfit around college. So to say this man wasn't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> probably the easiest to get along with is probably safe to say. Yeah. So I'd say trying to get any kind of truth or realism. Some of the best stories are about Carlos D, and apparently he loved ladies of a larger size and it was not a well-kept secret because there's one story about him Carlos D and I think it's Sam um, Kessler I think Sam Fogarino Fogarino yeah and them going out to a bar and he said it was actually great because like we'd hit on girls and Carlos D would go for like the heavier girl and I'd get the pretty girl basically that's the way it's put down it's like that is weird (laughs) it's not how like plain speaking people are about this and how I don't know I wonder who Lizzie had the most trouble like getting clearance from for the quotes. I think this is also another interesting thing. I I do feel that it is so honest because it's a woman writing the book. I don't think say a lot of the um male um band members wouldn't self would get as oh. much honesty out of them. Like they wouldn't be as upfront with say like some other dude just kind of like oh yeah, where it's kind of like oh I'll, I'll show my softer side. No, I'll I'll admit to you that I did all this stuff. So I think that's very interesting as well. Uh, Interpol was kind of the big, the big band for you from this book. I think so because they're the only. I suppose yeah, Interpol I liked, but I was kind of before like music. Yeah, before yeah, that. musically that you know they had some good songs. The albums I really gotten into, but then the way they talk about their music, the way they talk about the craft, the way Paul Banks comes out as well. Paul Banks basically has a whole uh, paragraph in the book. And you just talked about how much he loved the Strokes. The Strokes were class. They wrote their music. Yeah. They're fucking awesome. How dare they say they didn't write their own music and stuff like that. And you really respect them for like, oh, they like the craft of music. Because, again, it's easy to throw away into parts like, oh, the Joy Division wannabes. But then you kind There's of... There's a whole chapter about them like having to handle those comparisons. And I think that's another brilliant uh, move by uh, Lizzie Goodman that she can get... A man who is famously sick of talking about the comparisons to Joy Division to talk about the comparisons to Joy Division, yeah. which is fantastic. But they they have the honesty, and I think as well, this is the personal thing. They're not so heavily into the drugs <laughs> that like the Strokes well, different. They were. They were. Yeah, Paul Bank. They talk about it, but even uh, they don't seem as reckless about it or something because they come up as a bit kind of like oh we had our wild young days whereas like the show's like man I will do anything for a line like there's one brilliant thing with James Murphy and for his 30th birthday uh, Tim's Goldsworthy got him 30 lines of coke on a Roxy Music LP I was like hey happy birthday it's like I don't think that's good friendship really <laughs> I can't really call it like I'm turning 30 in a few weeks and heads up Owen I want one of those things and I don't like Roxy Music <laughs> Wow, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no. <laughs> what kind of what vinyl LP will you accept lines off of? Maybe the Strokes. <laughs> yeah, that'd probably be a good one. Oh, yeah. This is it. I think I have that on record as well. Oh great, so. we'll shoot up now. Can't turn it off. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Interpol are another band who, like, they don't have early success. They have a slightly different um career path, really. Career yeah, path to the Strokes. Uh, their first album is really, really acclaimed. They, they're touring it at the well they played electric picnic I, I presume it's the the tour that they were doing a 15 year anniversary tour of turn on the bright lights turn on the bright lights then their second album antics which is probably their best i it would say certainly so. has their best song Same. evil oh. on it uh great baseline and then they signed to a major label and they're like we were playing 2000 capacity venues and now suddenly we're playing 7000 capacity venues but it just doesn't last they release our love our love to admire but then suddenly they're back on uh, matador records yeah. straight away and it's just like it's so fleeting yeah. this idea of success that every band is chasing and it's like it's different to everybody in the book and they seem to handle it better as well they kind of well that was the way it is and the kind of success of antics goes back to because the internet like apparently it leaked it was something like five months Way before. Early, yeah. Like nowadays, like if something gets released a week before or something like that, it's like, oh no, band down the hatches, we have to get it out. 
imagine this is like back in the day five months before the album was ready to go and it was released that's terrifying to think of now well yeah see it's different as well though just because of spotify you just have so mm. much music at your fingertips you're yeah. not searching for brand new music all the time anyway but i don't know is that just me talking as you know like uh, 15 years on from when i was getting into the strokes True. you know uh and also the fact that i didn't have broadband back in 2004 so i couldn't illegally download anything you don't remember sitting waiting i remember i there was it was the new foo fighter song i think it was and i let it load up and dial up overnight to listen to it in the morning Imagine that now. <laughs> I get to wait, I go to bed, I have yeah. the computer running, going the entire night. Probably cost my parents about 20 euro just for that night alone to wait for it and dial up. Yeah. Like it's a completely different world. It is, yeah. And you and like just the fact that bands aren't as big nowadays either. Like, you know, that kind of um splitting mm-hmm. up of scenes and everything. And it's like, yeah, like a lot of the bands mentioned in uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom, which is taken from uh, Stroke Song on their second album called Meet Me in the Bathroom. Ah. Uh, a, a lot of the bands are guitar based. And so you sent me the Spotify playlist of kind of like all of the songs which are listed mm-hmm. uh, in throughout the book. And it's like six hours or seven hours yeah. of playlist long. It's great and everything. But uh, you don't listen to that much guitar music in a row anymore sort of thing no it's like it's great listening to the strokes again but you're kind of like oh, are they kind of one it's kind of a one trick pony thing here is it like where are the keyboards where's the dance <laughs> you know it's kind of like music has evolved in such a way and like guitar music is still really popular like as we speak red hot chili peppers are playing two dates in ireland in the mm-hmm. free arena um i think it was yesterday and today or it's today and tomorrow or something and the the cooks have sold out the kooks have sold out three shows at like the olympia or something like i'm that. sorry what yeah, i know that they're they're not mentioned in the book or anything like that but it just shows that like people do still like this type of um one trick ponyish type stuff Ooh. or they're easy. calling the kooks one trick ponies oh my god heresy um the i don't know but there's been no real guitar only band new bands in the past few years do you know what I mean? They're having, they're having. It's just like Royal Blood, for example, they're playing free arena later in the year. And it's like, I'm just not interested in it because I feel like I've heard it all before. And I think that this is just like, that's what happens when you turn 30? You're kind of like... The old age kind of... Yeah. Like, oh, and that's uh, how, that, early that how, can. Isn't that how it feels when everybody is talking in the book? They're like... As... Like, in the early... When they're talking about the early years, there is a kind of a sense of excitement mm-hmm. or thrill running through the book. And then towards the end, it's just like... You can just imagine, you know, cut two in the movie and everyone is just in a diner just drinking coffee and like, oh my God, I can't believe like what we went through and everything seems a lot more stilted or something. And that like, and the kind of, they, all the bloggers and journalists are like, oh my God, the strokes are amazing. Yeah, yeah, they're amazing. They deserve to be the biggest band in the world. They all deserve the success. They all deserve all the stuff. And then they get it. And yet there seems to be kind or of do a... They? But they, but they, but they do. But then it gets taken away from them. But that's they kind of oh no, now the Strokes are massive and everyone's listening to the Strokes. Ugh, I don't like the Strokes. So, you know the scene stirs who's like, oh, we're sick of this pop music nonsense. We want guitar music. Oh, Strokes are fantastic. They release a second album. Don't really care. Something else. So there's kind of, it's oh, I'm gonna quote Morrissey, (laughs) the worst thing is getting what you want. And so they got what they wanted. They want they got New York on a global scale, like massive. The influence was there. And then they said, ugh, the world loves New York now. Who cares? And it's kind of sad. And they, they want to go back to Alphabet City, which is a stretch, which I love when they talk about it. Uh, there's three streets they call Alphabet City because on the first street, you get um, alcohol. On the second street, you get... On B, you get cocaine, blow. And on C Street, you get crack. <laughs> so that's Alphabet City. So if you don't go beyond like A in Alphabet City, I was like, oh, that's interesting. But they were like, oh my God, it was amazing. That was the best time. I was like, no, you'd get murdered and die. This is not what you want from your city. <laughs> There's a lot more bands mentioned in the book, but I think Yeah Yeahs are kind of the third big group, or maybe the third big group, like The Strokes, Yeah Yeahs, Interpol, and then you also have the DFA story. I think mm-hmm. that those are the four main storylines mm-hmm. running through the whole book. Yeah. Yeah Yeahs are another band. Like, Karen O comes off as just this amazing person and they seem like such a 
their own type of gang. Yes. You know, like Nick Sinner was a lot young. I think he was, was he older? He was older. older. Um, and he was kind of in a band that was going nowhere. And then suddenly Karen O comes on the scene. And then like, yeah, yeah, make this amazing debut album, Fever to Tell. And then it's another case of like room to tell syndrome, room, room on fire, room on fire syndrome, where uh, they release their best song, like six months down the road. Uh, yeah. Maps which like got amazing airplay and really helped their career along. Do you know I was listening to to Maps uh, just earlier today. It's so good. And it's it's just such a conventional pop song. Like the chorus comes in so early. The I never really those drums. Oh, the it's fantastic. But it's uh for all Carno talks about it that she was a very shy person and that again she created this image of the wild front woman. She the wild woman was Karen O, where she was Karen Osgoworthy-Witz or something mm. like that. And Do, Yeah, it does seem really uh, kind of created. Yeah. one like art school type vibes. Again, not cynical, but calculated. Like, she knew this is the thing that will get our band noticed. That, like, and it seemed to have taken a toll on her. And uh, in the middle part of the book, they talk about the yeah, yeah, it's being referred to as the maybe-maybes or the no-no-nos because Karen O would take time off because she was mentally not there, which apparently Harm our Superstar was there for. Yeah, we'll talk about <laughs> More than him later. <laughs> and all this other stuff. So they come off as that Karen O and her image, it affected her that like being this crazy front woman made it worse for her. And Maybe on a personal... Yeah, and, a per- and so... It's what got them noticed, but also nearly cost them their career and maybe her sanity for a little bit. So it's, it's kind of worrying. Again, if you if you don't know what happens to these bands, you're actually worried for her. It's kind of like, is she going to come out the other side? Yeah. <laughs> I know she's being interviewed here, but is she going to be okay? And so they're kind of the New York bands. And then you kind of, you know, people start moving to Brooklyn and then you get kind of the Brooklyn sound, like Grizzly Bear kind of mentioned briefly. The National moved to Brooklyn as well. They're from the Midwest uh, uh, as well. And you wanted to quote Matt Berninger. Matt Berninger is brilliant. That um, front man of the national. Because they talk about like him coming to New York and the Brooklyn stuff, saying, "Oh, it's great," and making their sounds like, "Oh, we couldn't be the Strokes." Um, I didn't own any leather, and Converse hurt my back. <laughs> and it was fantastic because again, when you talk about those bands, Grizzly Bear, um, the National, they don't really have an image. Like they have a very, very individual, individualistic sound. But because if they'd gone to s- submitted to some idea of like oh we're all going to be dressed in something could they have been bigger in quotation marks um but they they become part of the brooklyn sound i mm, guess true. which is uh, maybe not um an aesthetic look it's certainly an aural uh, ideology or ideology, something yeah. yeah and for better or worse because you kind of write bands off as well like oh they're from brooklyn they must be you know pretentious or something yeah. like that like Dave Sitek is is there all along and he's probably who I would have thought of as quite a pretentious person but he comes off as one of the soundest guys he drives uh, th- uh, the IES to Austin, Texas for South by Southwest yeah, um, in a broken down van he 100% comes off as just the guy you want to have a point with because yeah, yeah. He, he says like oh I just I was around the place so I produced the IES first album like who else kind of goes well I was there they liked me so I was around the place and created this fantastic but again they I revisited their back catalogue for it and you so view good. it in a different way I think because I, I came to them very very late so it was kind of a wall of sound for me but once you kind of get that in point you kind of get it more then mm. personally um, but but then that kind of recent nostalgia is so I find it really interesting just the idea that like Interpolar touring that first album mm-hmm. uh, the strokes are are they done? Ezra, Ezra Koenig from Vampire Weekend Vampire Weekend have released three albums like you can argue like diminishing returns all the way i'm surprised how negative i am kind of towards vampire weekend i'm just i don't know some something's gone wrong along the way i love their first album yeah but then i'm just like less and less into them as it goes along and apparently they're releasing a new album in 2018 rostam the guitarist in the band and kind of the musical genius in the band has just released uh, his debut album which is interesting <laughs> I, won't, I won't say it's very good or good but it's interesting there's a lot of sounds in there uh, that's the most insulting thing I think I've ever heard you say uh, clap your hands say yeah 
are a band who I thought might crop up in the book. I think that they're New York. They're New York band, yeah. There, there's some weird omissions or something. I don't know because then you said it earlier. Like they bring in the London bands, and they bring in a couple of the London bands. Yeah, the dog Alex Capranos again comes off as very good, and he talks about the cultivating the image of the the sharp look and whatnot. And sure, I still have a pair of uh, shoes I wear that my brother first who has my Franz Ferdinand shoes. I mean, like when you've got a pair of shoes that someone first who has your Franz Ferdinand shoes, like you know they've made a very cultural impact. And Franz, I actually, I listened to Franz Ferdinand again because they talk about Darts of Pleasure. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that album. Listen to it through. Fantastic. Then I listened to FFS, the album they made last year with Sparks. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I was kind of it just completely went under my radar because like damn because I looked it up and they'd released four albums in the last fourteen years or thirteen years, which is terrible for a, like a band that were so great. And then I listened to FSS and it's really good. It's oh. actually surprisingly good. It, I thought it would be abhorrent of like uh, I don't like these guys anymore. But again, Capranus comes. Oh, Nick Murphy, Nick McCarthy left as well completely. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I, I, again, I feel bad. It's kind of catching up with old friends in the book because you kind of yeah. go, I haven't thought about Franz Ferdinand forever. Oh, they've lost one of their founding members and released an album with an American pop duo from the 1970s. Oh, interesting. And all this other stuff. Libertines only crop up a little bit in the Thank book. Thank God. Um, uh, and the Strokes kind of write them up as a Strokes copy band. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about... Uh, some guy in Liverpool sorting them out with I think I think it's with drugs oh it's 100%. either drugs are on support <laughs> on, on su- their support slot and it, then suddenly six months later the Libertines are born and then they're touring around the place and they're coming to America but the strokes are like they dress like us you know they were like those yeah jackets um the army outfit yeah. jacket things like yeah. Julian was wearing them on the first album yeah of the strokes but my favorite um quote as in like the moment that made me laugh out loud was Anthony Rosamando is quoted a little bit in the book. He's the guitarist in Dirty Pretty Thing. Dirty Pretty Things, I think. Is Dirty Pretty Things, yeah. Not the TV show, the band. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't really mention like why he's there in the first place. You know, because Dirty Pretty Things are mentioned in the book. Yeah. Cal Barat's band. And Cal uh, Barat isn't interviewed, is he? No, he is. He is, sorry. Yeah. He is, yeah, a yeah. little bit. Um, no Pete Doherty. But yeah, Anthony Rosamando is quoted. He's talking about... Um, uh, the dark room venue in New York and hang out with, uh, well, supposedly hang out with Interpol frontman Paul Banks. Anthony says, I looked awful. I was dirty. I had shit under my nails. But Paul, he'd have this sweater tied around his neck like fucking James Spader. James Spader of the music scene. Then Paul Banks says, Anthony, who? And it really is, as you say, the hangers on is just yeah. terrifying. The scenesters, the hangers yeah. on. Uh, there was something else. Oh yeah, speaking of them uh three of the names that really kind of stand out is like what are you doing in this book harmar superstar moby and david cross moby probably comes across as probably the best from them yeah david cross is kind of like i was into drugs then i was into music <laughs> and then harmar superstars i don't know he was your favorite character in the book. oh 100 i actually if you read the book i have a theory that harmar superstar doesn't exist like he's either a ghost or a magical fairy like he's asmodeus the flying around blue fella in the simpsons that he seems to be there there's a brilliant thing uh, the index is so comprehensive on both the kindle and the, the hardback copy that um you can look at it and it says like you know <laughs> By the way, he comes up in the in the index as superstar, comma Harmar, <laughs> which I loved. But it's like, oh, Harmar superstar on Interpol, Harmar superstar on yeah yes, and basically a link to them. And it's like, oh yeah, I was there, Harmar superstar. Thing. I was there when Karen O had a freak out and meltdown, saying she was cancelling two more shows. Oh yeah, I remember I was used to hang out in uh, Minneapolis and Conor Oberst would record songs underneath the table. Oh yeah, I was kind of around Detroit a lot, so me and Jack White would hang around and do drugs. There's no 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 one, no one else him. mentions him mm. that he's there for these magical things. It's like maybe it's a bit like oh <laughs> that they're all saying like no when I walked in the sand there was only one set of footprints. Where were you, Jesus? It's like I was on your back. I think that's what Harmar Superstar <laughs> sees himself as. That I he think was he backed up all of you. Yeah, <laughs> and it literally sounds like it. And then he talks about like, oh, I feel responsible because there's some random diet pill drug, uh, you, you click or whatever. And he hey, no advertising on the show. Sorry, I apologize. But Harmar Superstar says like, oh, I was on a private plane with this guy who had all this drugs for my tour, and I told this guy, don't give the Strokes guys these drugs. And then he gave the Strokes guys these drugs, and. 
but none of the strokes mentioned that Armour Superstar and his friend gave him these drugs. I don't think he exists. Yeah, it's uh, it's an absolutely brilliant. But oh yeah, one one of the points that I was mentioning uh a little bit ago was just like the Interpol are touring that album from fifteen years ago. Vampire Weekend, or they might release something next year. The strokes mm. are done by the sounds of it, and yet then you have bands like like this year is so interesting in that like. LCD Sound System have just released a new album. Grizzly Bear have just released a new album. Killers have released a few songs of an album coming out later have, this year, uh, I think. They released their album. Oh, was released? Kings of Leon released their album as mm. well. They, the, uh, Killers and Kings of Leon kind of crop up in the book kind of together. Killers and uh, the frontman Brandon Flowers sounds very, uh, I want this. Yeah, and uh, I think he does seem very wide-eyed optimist as well. He has like, oh my God, there was this one virgin megastore in Las Vegas where I can listen to all my CDs and I was like aren't you cute whereas like the New York fellas are kind of oh yeah there was this drug den where I heard all these awesome bands Brandon Flower was like yeah I heard the new uh, uh, Kings Leon song it was groovy <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of like so many of these bands are kind of trading on past glories like mm. yeah yeahs are I saw that they were playing a date in uh, LA um, at the start of October mm-hmm. so they're still a going concern as well but it's kind of like they got they all kind of seem like they're trading on what they were trading on back in 2004, five, yeah. six or whatever. Whereas you've got other bands who mentioned like the national, like I was, I'd love to talk to the national who I just saw at the weekend. It mm-hmm. sounds from the safe Harbor festival. Like, would you have preferred success at the start so that you'd have more money now? Or do you like the idea that you were such a slow build and that, you know, now you're at your biggest peak that you've ever been, but it's taken you like, 15 years to get there. I suppose, yeah, it is kind of the own individualistic terms of success. I would say the National would take it as, oh, we prefer this kind of slow, steady build. We'll probably stay at this level forever. We're not going to get bigger than we are now, but we're not also not going to be playing to seven people strung out, kind of going, we used to be huge. Yeah. Which, I mean, like... I mean, like, if the Strokes and uh, the National announced states at the three arena, you know, like, back-to-back, yeah. like, National would sell it out quicker or they would sell the most tickets yeah and i mean like we kind of brushed over the killers and kings leon they do have a good few chapters and stuff and they got properly huge like yeah they're probably the big success story in the book but it it seems so cynical yeah it's like you can't like you can't hang your hat on them and say like they were my band because of what they became i mean it's hard to like i can't like now kings of leon are just kind of like oh whereas like the second album came out Hashtag Heartbreak I played that front to back so many times it's probably one of my favourite albums of all time yeah it's not really mentioned in the book but the first album is mentioned a lot I think the first album is great I know you're not as big a fan of it again yeah because again we talk about you know the MTV2 you'd get only a song every so often so I would just I think just a contrarian in me I would decide I didn't like Molly's Chambers but I did like the other single whereas if you sat me down going oh yeah this is you know these are songs after song that are very very good <laughs> yeah and they're the bands who uh, like there's one chapter kind of laid on which is just a quote and it's like uh, we could be as big as them and yeah. they're talking about the killers I think I think so yeah uh, yeah. and it's mad that these bands just kind of come in and like see it's rock and roll in New York City the title of the book and it's like there are these bands who kind of come into New York City but it's not exclusively about New York mm-hmm. City bands and it's just interesting the way things go like it's a pretty depressing read in a lot of ways but it's such a revealing and fun and exciting read too and it does kind of take you back but it's like what music has become now is completely different to what it was back in 2001 and it is just interesting because you kind of play out in your head the parallels uh universes say if albert hammond hadn't gotten the drugs would the strokes be massive or would they just kind of teeter out the way they have would if other band if Ryan Adams hadn't come along given everyone drugs (laughs) I was waiting for you to bring him up but you had to uh, like yeah the first that I heard of this book was back in May when uh, uh, Vulture.com that website um, had an extract from the book uh, under the title The Last Moment of the Last Great Rock Band and Ryan Adams is there and he's just kind of painted as the guy who got uh, the strokes really into drugs and like Ryan Adams is still really, really popular. Like, I never thought of him as this guy. I, I kind of didn't really pay that much attention mm-hmm. um, to him. But, like, it seems like him and Albert kind of ran 
together and like ju- just here in front of me like I was just scrolling down the website and a quote from Ryan Adams talking about uh, Albert uh, jumps out Ryan Adams says I would never ever have given him a bag of heroin I remember being incredibly worried about him even after I continued to do speedballs <laughs> Uh, Julian Casablancas then is did I specifically tell Ryan to stay away from Albert I can't remember the details to be honest I think heroin just kind of crosses the line it can take a person's soul away so it's like if someone is trying to give your friend a lobotomy you're going to step in and Ryan Adams then is like I didn't do drugs socially and I don't remember doing drugs with Albert ever I wanted to smoke cigarettes and drink like red, dark red wine or vodka and ride all night like you just can't take anything he says seriously no and it paints him in like it paints him in a completely different light for me who never really liked him in the first mm-hmm. place but it also makes like that Taylor Swift album that he t- that he covered uh, 1989 I think yeah. it was last year it kind of makes total sense he's like we mentioned Harmar Superstar I think Ryan Adams might be the biggest hanger on in this book and it's weird because um, one of the journalists I think it's Mark Spitz just talks about Ryan Adams and that how talented he is that he can just write a great song just straight away that it's just it comes effortlessly to him but this attention, and he, he comes off as so, like, even, they were literally quotes after each other, and it's like he's contradicting his story straight away, and it's fascinating. And that's what's <laughs> fascinating about the book, is that, like, are these people all telling the truth? That's the, you uh, talked about earlier, and everybody kind of answered it, but that's the oral history thing about it. You said, was it difficult on the Kindle? But it's not because the history that's being discussed orally is so fascinating and has so many different viewpoints of one situation that you're always invested in it yeah uh i think it's the best music book i've ever read like i was excited about it from the second like i opened that mm-hmm. culture yeah uh, piece on it and like the book doesn't disappoint uh you read it so quickly and so easily and it's a great soundtrack to have as well 100 and it takes you back to which is kind of weird because it's like 50 years ago. So and, it's, ago. and yet it sounds so long ago as well i think for our generation just for our age group it is fascinating because it is you grew up with this music so you're kind of seeing like how they were reacting to the music you're growing up to so it's kind of a weird it's like the parallel lines of your life and their lives and it seems like every it, it's shocking that everyone has survived that's the one thing I've kind of just again I can't well the book is dedicated to Mark Spitz uh, one of the journalists quoted extensively throughout the piece so he passed away last oh, year I think yeah, I think he was a spin journalist uh, but um, um, that everyone survived and for the most part still making music which is surprising I mean you don't talk about diminishing returns and bands not selling out but they're still trying to create yeah, and stuff yeah. so it is heartening but I don't think we'll ever have they talk about the strokes being a moment and I don't know if there'll ever be a moment like that again you kind of hope there will be just for like 15 year olds now or whatever that they will have this one kind of convening moment where everything just kind of lines up it's like oh my god there's this band and something comes from there again it's like a, a rebirth of something that everyone can get on board with and have uh, thought of in 15 years time and have their throwback nostalgia moment I don't think they will just beca- because the internet because, because the internet. everybody just works online now and yeah. you know you can connect a band uh, like uh, can't think of their name no it's gone from me it's just just the connections that are made. Courtney Barnett and uh, Kurt Vile. Kurt Vile. Just them kind of getting together and creating an album, and you're like, it's kind of a dream team for me. I'm yeah. happy with that. And it's like you might not get another scene, but maybe you don't want another scene, another insular, uh, backstabby type of scene. That's true. Very very true. I do want a lot more oral histories, though. I want the oral history of London indie rock in two thousand and four, five, six, seven. I want the story of the Libertines told truthfully, <laughs> oral history. I think that would come with parental, like, <laughs> so it would be coming in a black bag that you can't talk about to anyone else. It'd be horrifying, I'd say. I want the oral history of like Irish music 2000 to 2010, when the immediate broke up. I want all of this. <laughs> you don't talk to those guys in the immediate, don't you? You don't <laughs> care what's okay, what's going on. But yeah, best music book you've... Oh, we, like, I haven't, I, my music um, book knowledge isn't massive. I would only read a few biographies or biographies and stuff like that. Kind of the describing of a certain time, I wouldn't have had much experience to. But this creates a kind of, oh, a full picture of it. Again, the end of it does seem a bit kind of meandering. Kind of like, mm. oh, I like some of these bands. And oh, they were in New York for 25 minutes. So yeah, they're a New York band. Brooklyn, that's a place. So 
it's a little bit but for the first like I would say it's 650 pages those 400 pages it is a brilliant picture of yeah. a certain place and time and just an ideology that w- is a moment and that will last forever uh, best stroke song um, I would have to say last night again I was listening to the uh, playlist and I still get a little bit of a chill every time yeah, I hear last night it does and it's just kind of there may be better songs or just better written songs but that song still is just that click oh yeah, yeah. meet someday uh, best song mentioned in the book Losing My Edge antics do you know what I, I was kind of thinking people. it is weird when they start talking about songs I can remember hearing them for the first time I remember hearing like um, Losing My Edge the first time and my first thought what was song? like uh, Losing My Edge oh uh, it's the system I, the first time I heard it I was like why did he record the song when he had a cold because mm. he's losing my head it <laughs> sounds like he's got a really bad cold but then I remember hearing um, Tribulations for the first time and that was probably my first favourite LC Sound System song and kind of going oh but that wouldn't be the one that would be like it's the best song but they talk about Someone Great which is my favourite LC Sound System song it is mentioned so I will put it underneath the radar there. <laughs> so uh, yeah me and Paddy we give Meet Me in the Bathroom two thumbs up <laughs> Four collectively. <laughs>